You can support the Historian's Podcast by clicking the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com. My name is Jim Kaplan. I'm a lawyer and historical writer. I'm the past president of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association and one of its founders. And I'm going to talk today about 9-11 and Rick Rascorla, who was really in many ways the, one of the great heroes of 9-11 and sometimes isn't as well known as he should be. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our New York City correspondent, Jim Kaplan, is here with a story about a 9-11 hero. This year is the 20th anniversary of the 2001 attack on America when Islamic terrorists flew two hijacked passenger planes into New York City's World Trade Center. And a third plane was flown into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. A fourth plane was downed by its passengers in a rural part of Pennsylvania, but apparently was on its way to Washington to attack the White House or the Capitol. Jim, you say in connection with the World Trade Center and the attack uh, on those buildings, it was a great tragedy, but also remarkable and heroic that so many people were able to safely evacuate those tall towers. Yes. As we approach the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attack on New York City's World Trade Center, it is perhaps appropriate to remember that while this was undoubtedly one of the most horrific events in New York City's history, it was in certain respects one of the most heroic. In the 103 minutes that the World Trade Center stood after the plane's attack, more than 12,000 people escaped from the towers and approximately 2,900 died. It is not often recognized that the evacuation of more than 12,000 civilians from the two towers was an amazing feat in which there were many heroes, not the least of which were the first responders of the New York City Police and Fire Departments, the Port Authority Police Department, the New York City Maritime Community, both private and public, and the occupants of the towers themselves. Who's the man that you'll be talking about today? One of the less well-known but more important participants in this rescue and evacuation that day was Richard Rascorla, the English-born security director of Morgan Stanley and Company, who is credited with saving the lives of more than 2,700 employees of the Morgan Stanley Company. There were approximately 2,720 employees of Morgan Stanley in their offices that day, and all but 10 of them survived. Unfortunately, one of the 10 who perished was Mr. Rascorla himself. Mr. Rascorla's story is one of the most amazing stories of heroism in the city's history, and one which deserves to be retold much more often than it has been, in my opinion. You worked many years in Lower Manhattan. What was the World Trade Center, and how did it come to be? New York's World Trade Center was designed and constructed in the late 1960s by the leaders of the New York Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, strongly influenced by Governor Nelson Rockefeller. It was conceived as a monument to New York's city's perceived continuing role as the international center of commerce and finance. It was a public project, which was somewhat unusual, that even at the time was considered by many to be tangential 
to the Port Authority's role of building bridges, tunnels, and airports. However, it was an act of hubris, if you will, by the political leaders of the two states, New York and New Jersey, that was intended to consolidate trade and financial companies in Lower Manhattan and hopefully establish New York City for all time as the international center of commerce and finance. At the time, the traditional financial center of the city was on Wall Street, but was moving to Midtown. The intent apparently was to keep significant finance and trade activities downtown on the west side of Manhattan. Reportedly, it was at the behest of the Port Authority PR men that it was decided that if the building's height could be increased from the original planned 85 stories to 110 stories, it would be taller than the Empire State Building, then the tallest building in the world, and thus could claim to be the tallest building in the world. This was a title that it would only hold briefly, as taller buildings would soon be erected in Chicago, Malaysia, and Abu Dhabi. How was the World Trade Center regarded by New Yorkers in the 1970s? Although planned in the optimistic and economic boom times of the late 60s, it soon became evident by the 70s that the dreams of its promoters were unlikely to be realized anytime soon. With the severe economic downturn of the early 70s, the possibility of significant renting space to the kinds of companies whom it had hoped would be tenants in the building evaporated, and it was largely filled by oversight offices of state and government agencies. At the time it opened in 1970, many, if not most New Yorkers, considered its construction to be a colossal mistake and a symbol of the crazy optimism of the late 60s, which was better left behind. It was hardly the source of pride to most New Yorkers that its creators had hoped. But did attitudes change to the World Trade Center as uh, time went on? Well, to some extent. As the city's economy, and particularly its financial sector, improved in the mid to late 80s, demand for office space increased, and some companies would look to the large, often vacant offices of the World Trade Center and the hoped-for cachet of its name as a place to locate. Among these was the brokerage firm of Dean Witter & Company, which was soon to merge with the more prestigious firm of Morgan Stanley. Uh, this company would occupy more than 15 floors in the middle of the North Tower with more than 2,700 employees. Significant evidence of the revival of the fortunes of the World Trade Center was the fact that the New York and New Jersey Port Authority, much maligned for its position to construct the building, received an offer in 2001 from Larry Silverstein, a prominent local real estate developer and entrepreneur, to purchase it for $3.2 billion, approximately the amount with interest and inflation it had cost 25 years earlier. This is where Richard Rascorla comes into the story. Uh, who was he? What was his background? The background of Cyril Richard Rascorla, the man who on, nine, on September 11th would become one of New York City and the nation's greatest heroes, could not have been more different than that of 
the city and most of the people whose lives he would save. Rescorla was born in the Cornwall section of England to a lower middle class family in 1939. As a child, he had seen and admired American soldiers coming to his hometown of Hale in England to defend Britain in World War II. In grade school and high school, he had learned the legends of the brave Celtic warriors who had defended his native Cornwall and learned folk songs such as Men of Harlech extolling their virtues. He also had an extremely high uh, view of uh, Americans and American soldiers who defended England in World War II. Around the time he was 17, he sought adventure and a life more exciting than he might find in the small British town in which he was born and where his parents and grandparents had lived all their lives. He thus enlisted in the British Army and was soon stationed in Cyprus. From there, he heard that there were better paying positions available with the police forces of the government in uh, white government, separatist government in Rhodesia. Mm. And that's... Uh, he went to Rhodesia, and that's where Rescorla met Dan Hill. Who was Dan Hill? Dan Hill was, you might say, an American soldier of fortune who would become one of his best friends. He, he, he loved the military and loved fighting in Africa and places like that. And somewhat unusual. Later, after a brief sojourn with the London Police Department, a helicopter unit, he, with Dan Hill, enlisted in the American Army. Uh, this was a potential route to combat in Vietnam, which was then accelerating, and American citizenship, which he always desired. So while in the American Army, he was quickly shipped in, the, in 1975 to Vietnam, where he became a highly decorated platoon leader in the Battle of the Idrang Valley under the legendary Colonel Hal Moore. He thus gained a reputation for great valor in battle against the North Vietnamese, and it was with the American army in Vietnam that he learned the motto of the American forces that after a battle, no soldier was to be left behind. What happened to Rick Rescorla after he came to America following his service in Vietnam? With the withdrawal of the American forces from Vietnam, Rescorla, who was now a U.S. citizen, became a beneficiary of the GI Bill, enrolled in college and later law school at the University of Oklahoma. He kept in touch with Dan Hill and other Vietnam veterans and sometimes went to reunions of soldiers from the Vietnam battles, many of whom undoubtedly initially felt alienated from their contemporary Americans, most of whom, or many of whom, had opposed the war in Vietnam. Upon graduating from law school, rather than practice law actively, he obtained a job as a security officer at the Continental Bank of Chicago where part of his job was to uncover bank fraud and investigate scandals in which the bank had lost money. Around this time, he got married and had two young children. Some years later, when the Bank of Chicago downsized, he obtained a job as a senior security officer with Dean Witter in New York, a prominent second-tier Wall Street retail brokerage firm, which soon merged with a more prestigious firm of Morgan Stanley. He moved to the New Jersey suburb of Morristown, where he lived with his two children and later became divorced from his first wife, Betsy Nathan. While in his 50s and living in a condo in Morristown, from which he commuted to lower Manhattan, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. However, he met Susan Greer, a twice-divorced American woman 
who was an assistant to a bank president with ancestors that went back to the American Revolution. They later got married despite his cancer diagnosis in a late-in-life romance that reportedly brought him and her great joy and satisfaction. Shortly after 9-11, he was informed that his cancer was in remission. He thus discussed with his new wife, Susan, the possibility that he might receive a buyout from Morgan Stanley for early retirement. It would permit him more easily to retire and each of them to spend more time with their respective children and stepchildren. Was he able to take that buyout? However, Morgan Stanley, whose management presumably thought highly of him, promoted him to vice president of all firm security. Upon elevation to this position, he asked his friend Dan Hill to come up to New York from his residence in Florida to look at the World Trade Center and analyze how a terrorist would attack it. Hill quickly reported to Riscola that there was virtually no security at the World Trade Center garage and that terrorists could easily fill a van with dynamite, ignite it remotely, and try to bring the whole building down. The Scorla bought a report, wrote a report to Morgan Stanley and Port Authority Management urging that security at the garage be greatly increased. Before that report could be fully implemented, on February 26, 1993, an Islamic terrorist from New Jersey drove a full truck of dynamite into the garage, and although the building did stand up, it was significantly damaged and six people were killed. As a result of having successfully predicted the terrorist attack in 1993, uh, uh, Rescorla's prestige with Morgan Stanley and Port Authority management significantly increased because of this terrible event. He was given a free hand to insist on better lighting and marking for all stairways, and despite grumbling from some employees to insist on regular mandatory security drills for all employees at Morgan Stanley, so that in the event of an emergency, they could evacuate the building quickly and in an orderly manner. These have been things which had shown to be had shown to be lacking during the 1993 terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. In a moment, we'll continue with Jim Kaplan's story of Rick Rescorla, who saved thousands of lives during the attack on the World Trade Center in 2001. To support the Historian's podcast, please click the GoFundMe link on bobcudmore.com or make out a check to Bob Cudmore and send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Jim Kaplan is an attorney and a founder of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. He's telling the story of Rick Riscorla, vice president for security at Morgan Stanley, a stockbroker firm that employed over 2,700 people at the World Trade Center. Riscorla's friend Dan Hill told Riscorla that he had heard unsettling information about al-Qaeda and its leader, Osama bin Laden. Yeah, Hill, meanwhile, had some contacts with Muslims in Florida, and he warned Riscorla that there was an Islamic leader named Osama bin Laden who wanted to kill Americans. Hill said that the Muslim terrorists considered the World Trade Center to be the symbol of American capitalism and international leadership. Now, ironically, this was really the vision of leaders of the New York and New Jersey Port Authority who had constructed it. 
but it was hardly the vision of most New Yorkers, I think. And he said that the Islamic terrorists might want to target it for attack again, perhaps from the air. The scholar thus went so far as to recommend to Morgan Stanley management that it might consider moving out of the World Trade Center to smaller and non more nondescript lower buildings in New Jersey, as some firms have done. Morgan Stanley management, who had considerable leases and investment at the Trade Center, presumably were reluctant to move the firm from such a prestigious Manhattan location to a suburban campus difficult for many of its employees to reach based on a theoretical fear. Now, in the year 2000, uh, Rick Rescorla's fame, I guess you'd say, or standing, increased because of a movie? Yeah, as the year 2000 approached, Rescorla was, in certain respects, memorialized in a film called We Were Soldiers. He wasn't entirely happy with the depiction there, but... uh, uh, starring Mel Gibson, recounting the Battle of the Adrang Valley. Uh, he didn't think it was entirely accurate, but in any event, he and Hill, in March, attended a memorial ceremony for Vietnam officer candidate school graduates at Fort Benning, Georgia, where he and other Vietnam veterans reminisced about their days in Vietnam. Later, after his death, a statue of Ruscola was erected at Fort Benning and is still there. Even though Riscola had a relatively good, well-paying corporate job as the vice president of Morgan Stanley, he discussed with Dan Hill how sorry he was that he would never again have the opportunity to achieve his goal of being a hero in battle, like the Celtic heroes he had in his youth been taught to admire, or perhaps as he had viewed himself in Vietnam. He would probably at some point retire from Morgan Stanley and lead an obscure, quiet life of travel with his beloved Susan. Like numerous other men in their late 50s who held corporate jobs at the World Trade Center, he commuted into the city from his suburban home in New Jersey, competently serving the company for whom he worked, but not expecting that he would have any real excitement of the type he once might have sought. What, what do we know of what happened to Rick Rascorla on the day of the attack, September 11, 2001? Well, little did Rascorla know on the sunny morning of September 11th, sometime before his planned retirement, he would die one of New York City's and the nation's greatest heroes, credited with saving the lives of more than 2,700 of his co-workers, but never again seeing his beloved wife, Susan. The September 11th terrorist attack on the World Trade Center has frequently been compared to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor as the most deadly attack on American soil. There is a fundamental difference, however. The surprise attack at Pearl Harbor targeted a military facility and American soldiers. The September 11 attack was aimed at civilian office workers who presumably had no military training and were really doing their regular civilian jobs. Mm-hmm. In certain respects, in my view, the September 11 attack was thus more similar to the air attacks in World War II by the Germans on the civilian populations of London, the response to which... Winston Churchill called Britain's Britain's finest hour. What happened after the first plane hit one of the World Trade Center towers? When word of the plane hitting the first tower, Rescorla, to some extent contrary to the instructions of the Port Authority employees, immediately ordered that all Morgan Stanley employees evacuate the building in accordance with the instructions 
at the many drills he had insisted upon. Reportedly carrying a bullhorn and singing the Celtic folk songs he had been taught as a youth, he led groups to the appointed well-lighted stairwells. He reportedly told employees on the way down that now was a day to say they were proud to be an American and the whole world would be watching them when they got down. Ultimately, more than 2,700 employees reached safety before the tower toppled an hour later. When Rescorla and his deputy, Wesley Mercer, were told that there might be a few people left, at least one of them was a banker who refused to evacuate over the objection of management, they insisted on returning with New York City firemen to get them. This was undoubtedly part of his Vietnam training of leaving no soldier behind. The tower thus collapsed, and Rescorla was never seen again. For Morgan Stanley to have lost only 10 people out of more than 2,700 was an amazing miracle. Was Rick Rascola's bravery recognized at the time in the aftermath of the tragedy? Some days later, Rascola's performance was hailed by Morgan Stanley President Philip Purcell as saving much of the company. There were many heroes in New York City that day, such as the more than 400 policemen and firemen who died trying to rescue people on other floors and other parts of the Trade Center. In many respects, an attack of this nature on this scale on a civilian population was unprecedented, and it was unclear how people would react when faced with this great danger. New Yorkers in the past used to have a reputation in other parts of the country for being arrogant, rude, and selfish, and perhaps cowardly. However, many of the people who lived in New York in 2001 were immigrants like Rick Rascola, where people would come to live in the city from elsewhere in the country. In fact, it's estimated that perhaps less than half of the people living in New York in 2001 were born there. There were numerous stories of grace and courage and self-sacrifice throughout that day that impressed people throughout the country, in the city, and throughout the world. It was because of men like Rick Rescorla, arguably doing their job, that the reputation of the people of Lower Manhattan courage under fire was greatly enhanced. As time passed, memories of Rick Rescorla and his amazing heroism dimmed. Fifteen years later, the recently formed Lower Manhattan Historical Association, concerned about attacks on immigrants, decided to hold the Alexander Hamilton Immigrant Achievement Awards to recognize immigrants who had come to the city and who, like Rick Rescorla, and had contributed to its greatness in certain ways, uh, Hamilton being a classic example. Cyril Rickerscola was at the top of the list as possible awardees and was one of the first, probably the first recipient of the award. <clears throat> After having some difficulty finding Susan Rescola, they asked if she would accept the award for her late husband. Mrs. Rescola, when contacted, wondered how the Manhattan Historical Association had heard of her, had heard of him, as she thought most people had forgotten him. However, after being assured that New Yorkers like the directors of the LMHA would never forget 9-11 or his amazing heroines, she graciously accepted the honor at a ceremony at Federal Hall on Wall Street. Pointing out that Mr. Riscola was very proud both of his English and American citizenship, she noted his statement that the, employee, to the, that the employees of Morgan Stanley 
should say they were never prouder to be Americans on that day. It was then stated by the moderator that if men live or work on the island of Manhattan for more than a thousand years, let it be said that the response to the 9-11 attack and of Rick Roscola and the New Yorkers he led was one of the city's finest hours. should point out that in 2019, former President Donald Trump presented the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award posthumously to Rick Roscola. Uh, Jim Kaplan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Let me ask you this, and I didn't ask you this before we started. You spoke of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association and the award that you gave posthumously to Rick Roscola. Were you the speaker that you, you mentioned, the moderator of that, that day? I was. I kind of thought so, yeah. So this is really a personal story for you about what uh, Rascorla did at the World Trade Center. In fact, you worked in Lower Manhattan. Did uh, You don't now, but did work in Lower Manhattan, that is. But did you then work in Lower Manhattan? Yes, I, I worked in Lower Manhattan for most of my career. I guess that's around uh, where I formed my new firm in Midtown, 2014. We moved, uh, uh, I don't work, but I frequently visited. I give walking tours to this day for the Museum of American Finance, uh, and I still run the July 4th parade, uh, which the uh, Lower Manhattan Historical mm-hmm. Association puts on, I mean, with other people, obviously. I, I think on that day, I was worked at 40 Wall Street, which is now the Trump building. I, I was on my way down to uh, my office, and my wife called me as I was going in and said, there's been an attack at the World Trade Center. And I think my first reaction, well, I must go down and see what the action is. But the city, quite properly, had cut off all the subways, so you couldn't get down from Midtown to Lower Manhattan. I watched the Trade Center's fall from Times Square on these big uh, television trains with horror. We went back to our offices relatively quickly. I was at the Hertzfeld and Rubin firm uh, on the 54th floor of 40 Wall Street, and uh, there was a huge amount of dust. Uh, they tried to get it cleaned up for Wall Street within a week, uh, so to show that we were, we were back, I mean, there was a big feeling that, you know, we've got to come back and we're going to show them. And, uh, uh, and I, I think to some extent that, that, uh, uh, idea still permeates uh, many people in lower Manhattan. Uh, I, I think the interesting thing to me was ours that be, we're going to erect a series of 85 story buildings. And then a group of people at one of these uh, public hearings to show how open this was said, we don't want 85-story buildings. We have to build taller than the World Trade Center, and the Freedom Tower mm. now is taller. Do you, do you think that was a good idea? Oh, yes. That's at least my view. I, I think there was a very uh, strong feeling among people in lower Manhattan, uh, like myself, that we, we have to show them. We can't be put down by the 9-11 attacks. We're going to build bigger, better, and stronger. And in many ways, Lower Manhattan has come back from the 9-11 attacks with significant government funds. 
significantly to its significant glory. It's now much more a residential area because of subsidies. So I, I think the, the 9-11 attack in many ways obviously was a watershed in the history of the, uh, of the country, but also it certainly was a watershed event in the history of uh, lower Manhattan. There's now a 9-11, extensive 9-11 museum. Uh, and I'd encourage people to go down there and, and go to the mm-hmm. top of the uh, new Freedom Tower. Jim Kaplan is a historical walking tour guide and writer who regularly writes for the New York History Almanac on New York City history. He, for 30 years, has given historical walking tours of Lower Manhattan and was founder from 2015 to 2020, also the president of the Lower Manhattan Historical Association. He is a tax, estate, and guardianship lawyer, and the founder of the Manhattan law firm of Greenberg and Kaplan. Thanks again to Jim Kaplan. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.